For years, we've aspired to gather our far-flung universe of listeners and readers in the flesh. Now, in partnership with the new 1440 Multiversity in the hills and redwood forests of Santa Cruz County, it's finally happening. Join me for our very first On Being Gathering, three days of conversation, poetry, and community with beloved teachers from the show and the blog and the entire On Being team. Special guests will include Maria Popova, Seth Godin, David White, Naomi Shihab Nye, Omid Safi, and Parker Palmer. Together, we'll take up the possibilities of this moment to generatively inhabit the spaces of our lives and renew common life in a fractured world. To find out more, visit onbeing.org gather. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. Mathieu Ricard is a French-born Tibetan Buddhist monk and a central figure in the Dalai Lama's dialogue with scientists. He was dubbed the happiest man in the world after his brain was imaged. But Mathieu Ricard resists this label. In his writing and in his life, he explores happiness not as a pleasurable feeling, but as human flourishing, a way of being that gives you the resources to deal with the ups and the downs of life and that encompasses many emotional states, including sadness. We experience Mathieu Ricard's way of being, and we take in his very practical teachings for cultivating inner strength, joy, and direction. You cannot, in the same moment of thought, wish to do something good to someone or harm that person. Those are mutually incompatible, like hot and cold water. So the more you will bring benevolence in your mind, at every of those moments, there is no space for hatred. That's just very simple, but we don't do that. No, we do exercise every morning, 20 minutes to be fit. We don't sit for 20 minutes to cultivate compassion. If we were to do so, our mind will change, our brain will change, what we are will change. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Mathieu Ricard is the author of several globally best-selling books, and he is the French interpreter for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He had a secular upbringing in France with his artist mother and a famous philosopher father. Growing up, he had lunch with the composer Stravinsky. The photographer Cartier-Bresson came for dinner at his family home. And Mathieu Ricard was surrounded in adulthood by brilliant scientists. He began his professional life at the Cellular Genetics Laboratory of a Nobel Prize-winning biologist at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. Now he resides at the Seychelles Monastery in Nepal, where he coordinates a number of humanitarian projects. I sat down with him in 2009 in Vancouver, Canada, at a gathering with the Dalai Lama, Nobel laureates, scientists, educators, and social activists. You know, I interview people who do many different things and come from many different traditions and professions, and I always ask, um, as a starting question, if you tell me a little bit about the spiritual background of your life. Spiritual which is, background. Yes, which is a different—which, if you ask someone that in the United States— even if they're not religious, you always get a really interesting story. But I really? Think, yeah, yeah, really interesting. But I think in France, it's a different uh, I think it would kind be of not question. an interesting story. Yeah. I mean, well, I know your father was a philosopher, but was 
even was there any kind of secular spirituality? Um, well, not. I don't know. Spirituality for me, if you look at the roots, means the, something to do with the mind, yeah. <laughs> dealing precisely with the mind and uh, the way you experience the world. Well, you know, I was just like uh, any of those boys in France. Yeah. I was raised uh, completely agnostic. Uh, and But when I was 15, 16, I started reading a lot. And also I have an uncle who was a great explorer who is still alive. Right. What was he, a solo yachtsman or something? Jacques-Yves Le Toumelin is a... He was the last of the great... Uh, solo navigator on sail without any engine. So he went round the world after the Second World War on a 10 meters long uh, yacht. And he was one of the four or five classics of those who circumambulated of the globe, you know, taking their time and beautiful uh, adventures. So while he was doing the circumambulation, he was also reading books about Hinduism, Sufism. Uh-huh. And he became a kind of, uh, you know... I won't say mystic, but certainly it was something that we would discuss a lot mm. when I was going for holidays in, in his home. So I started reading about all those great traditions yeah. and even including Christian mystics like the early Orthodox writings and Master Eckhart and yeah. you know, everything you can think of. Mm-hmm. And it's something that really mattered to me. At the same time, there was no living tradition. Uh, there was no connection except to reading and discussion, which was, of course, it's an important step. Right. But it was very, quite cerebral. It's very, very cerebral. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there was some aspiration mm-hmm. and some kind of you know, respect, but I didn't know how to formalize that. But that was still, you know, a quite a sort of politically very leftist type. Yes. Well, and also, I mean, really, <laughs> when I read about your parents and the world you grew yes. up in, it's quite a charmed childhood. I mean, you were surrounded by brilliant people and artists, great thinkers. That uh, recognition of the difference came a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So the turning point, um, the factual turning point, when I was 20, I then saw a series of documentaries with one of the Dalai Lama's interpreters for months and months. All the great masters over 2,000 kilometers of the Himalayas outside Tibet the great Tibetan master who had fled the Chinese invasion from Bhutan to Sikkim to India to Dharamsala. And at the end of the, one of the documentaries, there was a series of faces of contemplatives, some great masters, some simple hermits, just in sort of meditation, looking straight at the camera. Probably they were not looking at the camera, but they were meditating and they, someone filmed them yeah. in silence. And that sort of building up of the strength of that those faces, the strength of their presence, the strength of the silence. And what was also very remarkable is that they're all very different physically. Some very ascetic and skinny ones, some you know, more round faces, some young, some older. But there was a common quality that's hard to describe, but it's something to do with inner strength, compassion, unwavering quality of awareness and uh, all those things which constitute a true spiritual teacher. Right. And it's sort of like you hear about St. Francis of Assisi, you hear about Socrates, you hear about Master Eckhart, and you say, you wonder how they look like. <laughs> and there there was those alive now. Right. So I, you know, I must go there. So there I was, you know, going to train in India and 
finding Darjeeling and meeting those great masters. You know, I was really intrigued. Um, let's say this. I had a very different experience, but your story reminded me of this. When I was in my 20s, I was working in divided Berlin, and I ended up working in these very elevated circles of political strategy and military strategy. And I, my spiritual journey started when I kind of recoiled at the contrast between the importance of the issues and the intellectual and strategic substance of these people, the contrast between that and the very small inner lives a lot of them had. And I, I read a kind of similar observation that you wrote because you were surrounded by, I mean, you met Stravinsky and Bunel, and, but you said you can be a genius in your field and yet remain a dreadful person in daily life. Well, yes, I don't want only to accent the dreadful person. What I mean is that there is no obvious connection. Right. But so, I mean, what's so fascinating to me is you were, what you were attracted to was this embodiment, these yes. lives of integrity. And it was really experiential rather than intellectual yes. at that point. Because it struck me, you know, retrospectively almost, I, I sort of thinking, well, you know, all these wonderful people, great scientists, uh, musicians, uh, philosophers, painters, ordinary folks. No, you find a, a good distribution of everything. Right. Wonderful, warm-hearted people. Yeah. You know, you feel so good to be with them. And then, you know, people who are grumpy and not very altruistic and so forth. So therefore, the, it didn't seem that to become a scientist or to become a philosopher will make you necessarily a good human being. Right. Now, a spiritual teacher, if you say, oh, he's a great spiritual teacher, but wow, Besides that, he's so grumpy, it doesn't work. <laughs> you yeah. can't. Yeah. This is what you're looking for, for saying this is an authentic spiritual teacher. So there has to be a perfect adequation. And also, it has to be not a facade. There are so many, uh, you know, unfortunately, of those who look very impressive. And then if you scratch a little bit the surface, or if you wait long enough, yeah. you will see that there are sides of them that not fit with what they're supposed to be. So... Mm-hmm. The messenger has to be the message, and it has to be integrally the message. Mm-hmm. And what is most remarkable, having lived then for almost 40 years with great spiritual masters, is that, for instance, my second great teacher, Dilgo Kensir Moshe, who was one of the teachers to the Dalai Lama. And I was there at night with him because I became close disciple and attendant, one of the two monks who would, I would sleep in his room at night, help him to get, to get up if he needed so. When he would wake up to do his meditation at four in the morning, I would wake up and you know, serve him hot water or whatever. Mm. So all the time, when he was giving teaching, when he was traveling, when he was meeting kings, when he was meeting farmers, and over 15 years to see that absolute coherence and consistency in every aspect of that person's life, like the Dalai Lama, you know, see him in public, in private, in any circumstances. Mm-hmm. He's just such an extraordinary good human being. Right. There's no hidden side of it. So that was most inspiring. Right. Because you say, that's what I could become. Here is someone who did it. So therefore, it's possible. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Tibetan Buddhist monk and teacher Mathieu Ricard. 
He first became widely known in the West with the publication of the 1998 book, The Monk and the Philosopher. It documents a dialogue between him and his father, who was a pillar of 20th century French secular intellectual life. Asked by his father as the dialogue opens why he left his promising scientific career for a Buddhist path, Mathieu Ricard says this, My scientific career was the result of a passion for discovery. Whatever I was able to do afterward was in no way a rejection of scientific research, but arose rather from the realization that such research was unable to solve the fundamental questions of life and wasn't even meant to do so. At the same time, I was becoming more and more interested in the spiritual life in terms of a contemplative science. There's a book that was published, which was uh, in the form of a dialogue between you and your father, The Monk and the Philosopher, it was called. And it's really clear th- that he was very proud of you. He was very proud of what you were accomplishing. Well, not you, in the beginning. In the, well, no, but at, when you were heading towards your career in science as a cell biologist yeah. and you were, you did your, presented your dissertation to Nobel winners and you were working at the Pasteur Institute. And then, you know, he writes, you abandoned your career in order to commit yourself completely to Buddhist practice. And it seems to me that he felt where you could have pursued this career in science and you could have you could have made discoveries that were about things that were new. And instead, you went back to something that had been around for thousands of years. Yeah, I thought that was a waste. I mean, waste of potential. But... What I really, really am grateful is that he didn't show that. Mm -hmm. And so there was no slamming of doors when I left. Both my boss, Francois Jacob, Nobel Prize, he he didn't understand either. But, uh, you know, when I saw him 25 years later, he kept on looking at me and said, oh, you look good, (laughs) you look good. (laughs) So (laughs) not too bad. Um, But I think what intrigues me is the line that was there for you, because I think for you, it was less of a departure from your curiosity, your passion for discovery as a scientist. Here's, you know, here's something you wrote in another book, which was a di- form of a dialogue, The Quantum and the Lotus, which I really loved. Um, is there a solid reality behind appearances? What is the origin of the world of phenomena, the world that we see as real all around us? What is the relationship between the animate and the inanimate, between the subject and the object? Do time, space, and the laws of nature really exist? Buddhist philosophers have been studying these questions for the last 2,500 years. Yeah, I mean, for me, this idea, oh, how can you go from Pasteur Institute to the Himalayas? What a break. <laughs> right. There's no break. And of course, you change rooms, you change clothes, you move from one place to another, but there's a continuity in what you do unless you are forced by a tragic, dramatic event or you become mad. So in my case... I was very happy to be at Pasteur Institute. I think that scientific training helped me a lot to have at least a, some kind of rigorous mind. But then that was it. You know, to stay another few years, then I would have felt sort of like a, an animal caught in a trap. That was right. no more what I aspired to. And then, fortunately, I didn't have to wait till I was retired at 62 or something to, <laughs> to start that. Right. So, you know, Einstein felt that Buddhism was perhaps the religion of the future that could reconcile the best insights of science and spirituality. And um, You know, it's amazing. That quote of Einstein, yeah. it's typically Einstein's style, yeah. but I could 
we would never, never trace it to a precise speech or something. But everyone agrees that it sounds very much like Einstein's mm-hmm. writing or speech. Yeah, I, I haven't heard it so much as a quote, as an idea. I mean, it's more where his mind no, was going. It's a beautiful quote. Yes. And you really say that it's the one that fits with the that it can cosmology vision, that can reconcile everything. hold them together mm-hmm. in a creative tension. And then it really intrigues me because I think that this Mind and Life initiative of the Dalai Lama that you're also part of is a 21st century manifestation of that. Yes. That idea. So that yes, you see, Dalai Lama himself was always been so interested in science. He said, possibly he had not been Dalai Lama, he would have been an engineer. He says when he sees tools, he has a hard time keeping his hand off. <laughs> He's teasing. <laughs> but uh, from an early age, you know, he was very curious mind, very inquisitive mind. And so when he came in exile, one of his uh, wishes was to meet with great scientists. He met with uh, Karl Popper, with uh, uh, great uh, quantum physicists, and, and then more and more with psychologists and neuroscientists. So when they saw that, some of them got the idea of creating that Mind and Life Institute. You know, Francisco Varela, a great neuroscientist, Adam Engel, mm-hmm. who is a former businessman, now the chairman of Mind and Life, to facilitate this dialogue. First of all, was just to, to bring them together and have this wonderful small scale dialogue, five or six scientists, maybe 20 observers, and that was it. But then it quickly turned out that the discussion was so lively, so enriching from both sides. They was not just coaching the Dalai Lama, they were also learning a lot from his kind of mind. Right. And that uh, it became a little bit bigger, some public events start to happen, like the first one in, at MIT in, was investigating the mind. When John Kabat-Zinn was involved was in that. was in 2003. It was a, a groundbreaking. There was a thousand scientists yes. there and yes. Nobel Prizes and so forth. But also the idea of starting a research program that because Buddhism considers itself as an empirical approach of mm-hmm. the functioning of the mind, the mechanism of happiness and suffering, and so empirical means, uh, you know, we can certainly work with scientists without any risk of feeling threatened by that because if something is false, it's false. Right. What's the problem with that? Right. <laughs> so in 2000, following one of the meetings uh, that was devoted to destructive emotions, the first one to myself, I participated in Dharamsala for five days. And halfway through the week, His Holiness sort of one morning is his typical... Know, common sense approach said, well, all this is very nice, but what can we contribute to society? Some of the scientists present at that exchange responded to the Dalai Lama's challenge by creating a rigorous research program using scientific protocol to investigate the tangible physiological effects of meditation. Some of the most highly influential studies have been done since by Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Such research might one day yield new understanding of the mind, of the ultimate nature of human consciousness. But even the earliest experiments with serious long-term meditators began to change the field of neuroscience by providing original evidence that the human brain alters across the lifespan, a capacity known as neuroplasticity. You 
you were one of those meditators, one of the referred to as Olympic meditators. As you said, people who have meditated more than 10,000 hours or something. Yeah, like I think that. I would calculate roughly at 40,000, but probably most of them like completely distracted. I don't know, but in numbers right. I did. <laughs> but yes, because I was at that first meeting and I was from both worlds, yeah. I volunteered because I, I thought it was fun and I was very interested and curious. So and I was this is with Richard Davidson. Richard Davidson. So I was the first guinea pig, let's say. I've and then the this program has taken strength and now many labs, there's at least five or six major laboratories right. in the United States and in Europe who are now doing very in-depth research, not only in long-term meditators, but also which is more probably uh, relevant to mm, our world practical. with short-term meditation, like eight weeks, 20 minutes a day. What the changes that bring? And that also gives remarkable results. Right. I've seen pictures of you um, hooked up to the, all the electrodes. It looks like some kind of alien headdress. <laughs> um, so, okay, help me understand what's been learned, at least part of what's been learned, what, what surprised the scientists. Um, as you say, it's no surprise that there's a physical correlate, that you're meditating and that in that moment they might see something happening in your brain. But I think that uh, one of the learnings that, challenge some thinking was that these changes were permanent, right? Yes. That even when you weren't meditating, the gamma waves were present and were different. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, first of all, I think it was very much needed to show that long-term or even short-term mind training, you spoke of neuroplasticity. What does that mean? Plasticity means the brain can change functionally and possibly structurally following a training. Actually, this is uh, one of the major uh, discovery in neuroscience for the last 20 years, not only at all with meditation. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, it was thought that the adult brain can't change anymore right. because it will make a huge mess. It's so complex that you cannot fiddle around with that. Then they found that birds that learn new songs, the brain change, uh, musicians that play 10,000 hours of violin, the area of the brain that has to do with the coordination of the finger is vastly increased, that the London cab drivers who have to learn 20,000 street by heart, the area that has to do with the topology <laughs> is vastly increased. So what about compassion? What about focused attention? Basically, it's just another skill. Of course, it's a skill that matters more in your life. You know, compassion, obviously matters more than learning 20,000 streets, except for taxi driver, probably they need both. <laughs> right, yeah. But those are such basic human qualities that if you can cultivate them, you can imagine how crucial it is. And so to establish that meditation is not just like a nice relaxation where you empty your mind, those cliches that are still attached to the notion of meditation, mm -hmm. that's why we prefer the, maybe the idea of mind training and to rest in the perfect transparency and uh, the freshness of the present moment is not a strenuous exercise, but it's something that requires experience. Now, the question about the ultimate nature of consciousness, of course, that's not what we are looking for right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no way I think science right now could address that question, except on the philosophical level. But if you want, we can go into detail about the Buddhist reasoning about why well, well, nature of that, consciousness could be something that's else? That's what I'd like. I'd like to know how you think about it. And, and okay. it's clear that there's one way that, that science can define it at this point. 
Okay. How do you explain what, so what they found? Let's see. Yeah. Uh, you have what we call primary phenomena. You know, look at matter. You know, the famous question of Leibniz, why is there is something rather than nothing? Well, you say, well, there is something, whatever it is. You just have to acknowledge that the phenomenal world is there. Now, consciousness, you can study it in different ways. What we basically call the third-person approach, means looking from the outside, and the first-person approach, looking into your experience. So third-person approach is very clear, is what neuroscience does better and better, is whenever people think of emotions or just uh, are alive, something happens in their brain. Yeah. And you can describe that in increasingly sophisticated details. And when someone sees red or someone feels love, you could describe right down to the most uh, single neurons what's going on if you had the power of investigation. But you have no clue what it means to see red, feel love as an experience. So that's the first person. I mean, a great neuroscientist told me there's no mind, there's just brain function. Okay, fine, <laughs> okay. brain functions. But we have experience. Nobody can deny that. And actually, that experience is primary to anything. There was no science without experience. We could not conceive of the brain without experience. Without experience, forget about the world. There is something very fundamental that's the basic cognitive quality of mind. You can call that basic awareness. You can call it a fundamental aspect of consciousness. The most basic quality that you know rather than you don't know. Just like in matter, there's <laughs> right. something rather than nothing. Right. In Buddhism, we call it the luminous aspect of mind. Not that it shines lights in the dark, but luminous because that's what illuminates your world. It's like a torchlight, a light that allows mm. you to see things. Mm. But light is the fundamental thing that doesn't change. If light shines on a heap of garbage, it doesn't become dirty, it just reveals it. Right. If light shines upon a diamond, it's not become expensive, it just reveals the diamond. So there's a fundamental component that's basic consciousness. So now you can say that from that perspective, that this is also a primary phenomena. So that's the Buddhist reasoning. It corresponds to experience. And there's just an open possibility for investigation. You can listen again and share this conversation with Mathieu Ricard through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the Tibetan Buddhist spiritual teacher Mathieu Ricard. I sat down with him in Vancouver, Canada, at a series of gatherings with the Dalai Lama, scientists, educators, and activists. 
Mathieu Ricard is the author of best-selling books on happiness, contemplation, and altruism. His book, The Quantum and the Lotus, is a conversation between him and the astrophysicist Trinh Huan Tuan. Tuan was born Buddhist in Vietnam and became a scientist. Ricard grew up in a secular family in France, trained as a scientist, and became a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Both are intrigued by correlations they trace between the way quantum physicists describe matter and energy and the way Buddhists understand the interdependence and impermanence of human experience and all of life. You have this book, um, The Quantum and the Lotus, which is a dialogue between you and an astrophysicist, Trin Huan Tuan. And I wonder, you know, I'd love to know about what insights emerged for you in that conversation, like what you... And I know you, you are schooled in all of this. You read this anyway. But um, talk to me a little bit about what you've learned in that conversation and in others about how some of these very fascinating ways that the insights of modern physics are bearing out some of the things or giving a new way to think about some of the things that Buddhists have been saying and practicing for many millennia. So it was another great encounter. I met uh, Trin Huan Tuan in uh, Andorra, one of in the okay. Pyrenees. We were both invited to some summer university. And immediately he said, you know, I'm born in Vietnam, born a Buddhist. I always wanted to have a dialogue about Buddhism and astrophysics or modern science. We did that. It was wonderful. The most fascinating thing I'd learned through this dialogue was precisely about something very deep about the nature of reality related to interdependence mm-hmm. and impermanence. And interdependence, of course, in, in modern physics, is a slightly different, is non-localization. Right. The fact that if one photon or particle split into two and they shoot out at basically any distance in the universe, they still remain part of a whole. Right. So there's something there that is still not separate. Right. Uh, so that was an incredible insight for me because interdependence is not just the fact that things are related, but also that therefore they are devoid of totally autonomous, independent existence. Anything beautiful, ugly, uh, I don't know, red, blue, any characteristic comes through relation. Relation co-define an object. Like take a rainbow in the sky. Well, it looks very beautiful, very, very vivid and clear. You'll think that that rainbow as something existing on its own. Now you just, behind you, you mask the rays of sun and there is not a speck of existence of that rainbow that remains. It's all gone. Because you remove something, an element of set of relation that crystallized that rainbow somewhere as a phenomena. The idea is it's the same for every single phenomena. Nothing exists on its own. And that has profound repercussions in Buddhism not only as a philosophical idea, but also the way we grasp to the world. If you grasp to something as being mine, therefore mm. that mm. object exists on its own. And I mean, would you also say that um, a human analogy would be this phenomenon of globalization? Well, and it leads to what the Dalai Lama calls the sense of universal responsibility. Right. And now more and more leaders are speaking of interdependence, and mm-hmm. I hear that word again and mm-hmm. again in about the world is interdependent. Right. 
And it is true. You know, we are interdependent. Even I would say even more deeply than what we mostly think. But that leads to also the sense of interdependency is at the root of altruism and compassion. Mm -hmm. That's one of the consequences of understanding interdependence. You know, if you think of uh, separate entities, well, I am a separate entity as well. So, what do I do? I create a small bubble. A self-centered bubble, and I take care of my own happiness because, after all, I am this separate entity, so I just have to build my own happiness, and that's right. fine. Right. And everyone will become happy in their own bubble, and then the world will be fine. Well, if it would work, okay, but this is not working. Why? Not just because of moral issue, because it's bad to be self-centered, because it's dysfunctional, because it's at odds with reality. Right. So it doesn't work. Right, right. I want to... I want to talk about happiness. You've been labeled the um, happiest man in the world coming out of these well, totally Davidson experiments. <laughs> totally <laughs> artificial. <laughs> I issued about a thousand disclaimers, but nobody cares. You did. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get covered. Um, I did identify with some of the things that you've written that um, when you were younger, you thought that happiness was not necessarily a very laudable goal. I mean, I... I, I, I didn't have no idea about it, basically. Right, but it, you know, you're worldly wise and rational and um, we also live in this culture where the word happiness gets completely watered down. And So I want to just talk about um, how you define happiness because we have to put a lot of Yeah, that's very important because that's why also this word is so vague. Yeah, it's That, a you know, you can use it, you know, by this... Uh, Toothpaste and you'll be happy, you know. Okay, right, good, right. good luck. So, I think we should clearly see what are the inner conditions that foster a genuine sense of flourishing, of uh, mm. fulfillment, that the quality of every instant of your life uh, has a certain quality that you appreciate fully. So, you see, it's very different from. People or sometimes imagine that constant happiness would be a kind of euphoria mm -hmm. or endless succession of pleasant experiences. Right. Now, that's more like a recipe for exhaustion <laughs> than happiness. Right. And also, if you look at the parameters, this is very different. Pleasure depends very much on uh, circumstances, uh, what triggers it. Mm -hmm. uh, then it's a, it's a sensation in a way. So sensation change. Yeah. from pleasurable to neutral and to unpleasurable. I mean, even the most pleasurable thing, you eat a, you know, something very delicious. Once it's delicious, two, three times, okay. And then 10 times you get nauseous. Yeah. You are very cold and shivering. You come near a bonfire, such a delight. But then after a few minutes, you start, okay, then you move back. It's too hot. Yeah. The most beautiful music, you, you hear it five times, 24 hours is, is, is a nightmare. Yeah. And also, it's something that uh, basically doesn't radiate to others. You can experience pleasure at the cost of others' suffering. So it's very vulnerable to the change of outer circumstances. It doesn't help you to face the outer circumstances better. Mm. Now, if we think of happiness as a way of being, a way of being that gives you the resources to deal with the ups and downs of life, that pervades all the emotional state, including sadness. Right. So if we think of sadness, it's incompatible with pleasure, but it's compatible with what? With altruism, with inner strength, with inner freedom, with sense of direction and meaning in life. Oh, there are sad things. But if you don't fall in despair, 
still you maintain that wholeness and that sense of purpose right, so and this meaning. happiness also the way you describe it is something that en- can encompass sadness and grief can what encompass it can encompass every things. mental state except those who are just opposite which is like despair hatred precisely the mental factors that will destroy inner peace, inner strength, inner right. freedom. If you are under the grip of hatred, you are not free. You are the slave of your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. So that's not freedom. Therefore, this is opposite to genuine flourishing and happiness. So we have to distinguish mental factors which contribute to that way of being, the cluster of qualities like altruistic love, inner freedom, and so forth, from those who undermine that, which is like jealousy, obsessive desire, hatred, arrogance. We call that mental toxins Hmm. because they poison our happiness and also makes us to relate to others in a poisonous way. So that's something that you can cultivate, Mm -hmm. unlike pleasure. You don't cultivate pleasure. But happiness in that sense is a skill because why? Because altruistic love can be developed. We have the potential for it, but it's really untapped. All these other qualities can be enhanced to a more optimal way. And therefore, those are skills. You've also talked about this kind of happiness as a way of interpreting the world. Um, You said a way of being. And then you you quoted um, Tagore. I thought this was such a wonderful illustration. We read the world wrong and say that it deceives us. Exactly. You know, it's how do we read the world? In the same situation, people experience it very many different ways. We know that. So the quality of our experience can easily eclipse the outer condition. Not that the outer conditions don't matter. Not, not mistake for that. I mean, it's infinitely desirable that we provide to others and to ourselves conditions for survival. Yeah. There are so many people in this world that cannot feed their kids. It's unacceptable. So anything that can be done should be done. And it's a joke if we don't do it. I mean, if we are failing all principle of basic morality. But yet we should acknowledge at the same time that you can be miserable in a little paradise, you know, have everything so-called to be happy and totally depressed and a wreck within. Mm. And you can maintain this kind of joy of being alive and sense of compassion even in the worst possible scenario. Because the way you translate that into happiness or misery, that's the mind who does that. And the mind is that which experience everything from morning till evening, that's your mind that translates the outer circumstances either into sense of happiness, strength of mind, inner freedom, or enslavement. So your mind is, can be your best friend, also your worst enemy, and it's a spoiled brat of the mind needs to be taken care of, <laughs> which we don't do. Right. We vastly underestimate the power of transformation of mind and its importance in determining the quality of every instant of our life. So I imagine that people ask you, uh, how do I become happy? I mean, what do you say? How do you respond well, to that? Well, clearly by first saying yes, outer circumstances are important. I should do whatever I can, but I should certainly see that at the root of all that, there are inner circumstances, inner conditions. What are they? Well, just look at you. you now, if I say, okay, come, we'll spend the weekend cultivating jealousy, you know, who is going to go for that? We all know that, even say, well, that's part of human nature, but we, we are not interested in cultivating more jealousy, neither for hatred, neither for arrogance. So those, we would be much better off if they were not, didn't have such a 
grip on our mind. Mm. So there are ways to counteract those, to dissolve those. I mean, you cannot in the same moment of thought wish to do something good to someone or harm that person. So those are mutually incompatible, like hot and cold water. So the more you will bring benevolence in your mind, at every of those moments, there is no space for hatred. That's just very simple, but we don't do that. No, we do exercise every morning, 20 minutes to be fit. We don't <laughs> sit for 20 minutes to cultivate compassion. If we were to do so, our mind will change, our brain will change, what we are will change. So those are skills. They need to be first identified, then cultivated. What is good to learn chess? Well, you have to practice and all that. In the same way, we all have thoughts of altruistic love. Right. Who, who didn't have that? But they come and go. We don't cultivate them. Right. You learn the piano by playing 20 seconds every two weeks? It doesn't work. So why, by what kind of mystery, some of the most important quality of human beings will be optimal just because you wish so? doesn't make any sense. Right. I have a friend who is 63 years old. He used to be a runner when he was young. He gave up running. Now, a few years ago, he started again. He said, when I started again, I could not run more than five minutes without panting for breath. Now, last week, he ran the Montreal Marathon at 63. He had that potential, but it was useless until he actualized it. Mm -hmm. So, same potential we have for mind training, but we, if we don't do anything, it's not going to happen because we wish so. What you're talking about is a is a life discipline, and it has well, to I mean, do with myself, everyday if as well. I, you know, I was struck by that, that we need to put that in action in a way. Oh, action doesn't mean like frantically running around all day long, which I'm unfortunately doing a bit too much, <laughs> but being the exemplifying that in our life. So that's what led me. The one, my only regret some years ago was not to have hands down trying to serve others. Mm -hmm. So when I had the possibility of doing that, I jumped into that. And I'm, I'm absolutely grateful and delighted that I can now we have, a, we treat 100,000 patients in the, in the Himalayas, India, Tibet, and Nepal. We have 15 kids in the school that we build. It's not huge compared to some other big organization, but at least we did our best. So my motto in a way will be to transform yourself to better serve others. Right. If you see in the humanitarian world, grains of sand that bring everything to an halt, is corruption, clashes of egos, human factors, more than resources. So how to avoid that? Those are lack of human maturity. Mm -hmm. So it's not vain or futile exercise to perfect yourself to some extent before you serve others. Otherwise, it's like cutting the wheat when it's still green and nobody is fed by that. So we need a minimum of readiness to efficiently and wisely be at the service of others. So compassion needs also to be uh, enlightened by wisdom, otherwise it's blind. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the biologist turned Tibetan Buddhist monk and spiritual teacher Machu Ricard. I sat down with him at a conference in Vancouver headlined by the Dalai Lama.
This gathering that we're at, and I, I think you find yourself in many gatherings like this where there's a collection of wise people, people who are practicing these things and um, finding an integrity. And here, you know, the Dalai Lama was here. There were a number of Nobel Peace Prize winners. And several people have said, and I hear this also in conversations I have, that we might be on the cusp of some kind of spiritual evolution, that people may, in fact, human beings may, in fact, be learning something. Um, and I think the fact that science is taking these um, spiritual disciplines, these spiritual technologies like meditation more seriously are one manifestation of that. And yet we will go back to the places we live in, and there's, there's also um, outside gatherings like this we're then confronted again with um, a great deal that's wrong in the world. And I, I don't... I wonder what your perspective is on um, where we are as a species, no, I, as a planet right now. No, I think ideas uh, change slowly, but sometimes they are tipping points. Mm -hmm. you know, for instance, the environment, I don't know, 35 years ago or 40 years ago, when Rachel Carson's uh, book, right. Silent Spring, came out, you know, I was a teenager, bird watcher, and for us it was a revelation. Yeah. But we were just this kind of lovers of nature and nobody cared for that. And they thought it was just crazy ideas. Now it's a major preoccupation. It took a certain number of years, but it was all there yeah. already. So ideas like uh, we should work towards a more altruistic and compassionate society is taking momentum because also now it's not more a luxury. It becomes a necessity. Yeah. So what, what is an evolution uh, pressure? is when it's sort of necessary for survival. So in, in ancient times, it's maybe fine for tribes to fight each other over hunting grounds or whatever. Nowadays, with precisely this interdependence and this globality, we are all part of one family. That's not just a nice, naive image. No. Right. Either we're all losers or all winners in terms of survival. No, we can't say that uh, it's, it makes sense for just one nation to be powerful, rich, and so forth. If the whole world is starving, that will create immense wars and, and difficulties. And the environment can only be a, a transnational solution. So hopefully, <laughs> evolution will take all quickly enough so that you know, altruistic behavior become unsense and not just seemingly altruistic behavior, which is selfishness in this guy, but right. real concern for all. Because after all, the true altruism is a genuine consideration for all sentient beings, whether they are your tribe, your relatives, or your own gene lines, forget about that. <laughs> it has now to be concerned for all that lives. Something that I... Um I see as a as a characteristic of um, of you. Okay, so you've you've issued declaimers that you're not the happiest man alive. I mean, doesn't I mean <laughs> I just want to say that. Yeah, it's just taken by an English newspaper. Yeah, it's not based on scientific I data. <laughs> I apologize to my scientist friend. It is better than to be labeled the most unhappy person in the world. Fine, but it's, it rests on no scientific okay. evidence. but but let me just say this: a quality of you, and of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, and other very wise people I've come across, spiritual people, serious people. It's also a very robust um, sense of humor. Right? <laughs> He's always laughing. He's funny. Yes. And even before I met you, when I've seen pictures of you, you know, you, you always have a smile on your face. And I, I want to know, um, where does humor come into this, to wisdom? 
But humor comes with, you know, when, you know, when you are not, uh, first of all, you know, if the ego is not such a target that is always there, exposed to all the arrows of praise and blame and criticism and all that, and you are not too much, uh, you know, susceptible to that, basically you don't care to start with. You know, nothing to lose, nothing to gain <laughs> from all this noise of, oh, you are such a great guy or just, you are just a bastard. You know, it's just like, <laughs> what does it mean? It's like echoes. doesn't care. So it, it gives the sense of less vulnerability. It's a real strength. People think that a strong ego is a strength. Strong ego is ultimate vulnerability. You know, you are so preoccupied with that strong ego, you can't sleep anymore. Right. <laughs> but if his ego is transparent, you know, so fine. So, sort of lightness and then also because you have this real confidence not come from strong ego but you are much more available to others so open to the world right you know i i, I see that in, in tibet very often you know sometimes you find a very difficult situation our car when we do those projects and schools and and clinics we get stuck in the middle of a river with our car you know big stream is raining you know everybody will just you can imagine some people screaming, you know, upset. Usually it ends up, everyone is on top of the car cracking into laughter. Such a, <laughs> they think it's such a funny thing. <laughs> so there's a kind of, uh, you know, we do our best and there's things happen. And why should you take it too seriously? Because you know, we'll survive that hopefully. And after all, what's the, what's the problem? Just one part of the journey. And it's so much more fun if you take it like that than... You know, making all these tantrums about things. Right. It's just precisely what I, we were mentioning before, the way you interpret the world. You know, I, I, I gave this example, which struck me. I was out, sitting outside our monastery once, and it was monsoon time in Nepal, a lot of mud and water, and we had put some bricks over about 20 to 30 meters to, to go from one brick to the other to cross that, that mess. And one person came, a foreigner, and that person was just screaming, oh, it's disgusting, this place, and wow, and look. And then she came, I was sitting there, and she's going to scold me for just there. Me. <laughs> and then so, okay. Then five minutes later, another person came, well, were two ladies, and she was just hopping from one to the other, saying, oh, it's so nice, <laughs> it's such a fun. Right. And when there is rain, there's no dust, and she was exactly the same situation. And she had a sense of lightness and humor. The other one was just like, grumbling like crazy about it. So, same situation, different perspective. Hmm. All right, that's your last word. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mathieu Ricard is founder of the humanitarian organization Karunization, and he is the French interpreter for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His books include Happiness, a guide to developing life's most important skill, and Altruism, the power of compassion to change yourself and the world. His latest book is A Plea for the Animals, the moral, philosophical, and evolutionary imperative to treat all beings with compassion. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, Carolyn Friedhoff, and Catherine Kwong. 
Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.